All right. Well, shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for being our awesome God. Thank you that you are glorious and all your ways are good. And thank you, Lord, that you change us, that you don't leave us the way we are, and that you open our eyes to see our need for salvation, for forgiveness, and also how our lives and the resources you've given us can be used to bless others and to glorify your name. I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to open our understanding, that we could comprehend what you're saying to each one of us, that we'd be quickened by your Holy Spirit, and that we would grow and be fruitful as we have fellowship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about Jesus being risen. He is risen indeed, and he was forever changed. He was glorified as he came out of the tomb. And really, when people are born again, they too are transformed. They're made into new creations where old things have passed away and all things have become new. And the change often isn't external, but internal. He changes the way that we see things, our perspective, our desires and appetites. And there's things that we have a pang, perhaps, of guilt where we had no problem whatsoever with something, but we realize that, oh, this is actually a lie. We just didn't get it. Um, but the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin. He changes the way that we interact with others. And uh, we see it in the disciples as well, that, that impulse for self-preservation. Uh, they locked their doors for fear of the Jews, but after being filled with the Holy Spirit, they said to the very people who killed Jesus, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they continued boldly preaching Jesus in public. Peter, once he, he saw Gentiles as unclean and he avoided associating with them, but God opened his perspective to see that what God has cleansed he should not call common or unclean. So the way that he, he dealt or, or uh, yeah, he, he uh, lived with Gentiles was totally different because he would actually eat with them when he would avoid them previously. You guys know how it is we tend to give back what we are given. If someone pushes us, we push back. If someone hits us, we might hit back with a little extra. You know, we return in kind. But God wants to change our perspective, that we would not use worldly means or carnal means to protect ourselves or to promote ourselves, but that we would seek him and trust him. And he has given us powerful weapons that pull down strongholds of Satan. So we don't need to despair. We don't need to worry or be afraid when we see the world in the state that it's in. But we are able to, through his strength and through his power, to walk obediently to him. Quite often the battle is not out there somewhere. It's not a bad guy. It's, it's in here and in here. That's where there's a real battle going on every day that we can fight and be victorious in over temptation, over fleshly lusts, over everything, addictions, things that would draw, pull us down and turn us from the Lord. When the believers started following Jesus, he did not hide the fact that they would be persecuted, arrested. They would face many trials. And one might think that this would deter people from coming to faith. And seeing other Christians die for their faith, that even less would become Christians. But quite the opposite happened. We see that the church grew and it flourished because these believers were living in light of the resurrection. They were not afraid to die. They were not afraid to suffer, because Jesus Christ had suffered for them. He had been raised 
from dead to life, and they too no longer needed to fear death because they had a hope that could not be taken away from them. The gospel had spread from Jerusalem to Jews in Judea, Samaria, even in Gentile cities. There were lives lost, families were torn apart through persecution, but God brought much good out of the suffering. And we're like, well, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't want to suffer, but if, if God can bring suffering out of your life, that's good. But suffering in my life is never good, right? We just, we, we want suffering to end. We want our suffering to end. That's the way that we're gonna, we think this is where peace will come. I will be at ease. I will be at rest. When this trial is over, just make it be over, God. The irony is, it is in the midst of the trial, the, in the midst of suffering, where we can find the greatest peace through Jesus Christ, because he's with us and he won't leave or forsake us. We want it to be over, but he's saying, I will walk with you in that. I will strengthen you to endure it, and your faith will come out stronger in the end. Do we trust him enough? That, that bitterness can be swallowed up. The bitterness of death could be swallowed up in victory. And we see that happening in the life of Jesus. We want his life. Are we willing to walk with him in the fellowship of suffering? So instead of being depressed when the church suffered loss, it was just gain because the word of God spread. The family of God grew in exponentially in numbers and in joy. They were joyful. They were living in the reality of the resurrection. So, Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I love that we sang that song that our God saves, because that's exactly what we're talking about today. Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. To this point in the book of Acts, the persecution of the church was largely initiated by the religious Jews. But now we see that the persecution has expanded to include the Roman government. So Herod, he sought to harass the church. And harass is, is, it's a serious thing, but I don't think we think of harassment as serious as this, because this was murder. This had murderous intent. He harassed the church. He sought to harm and to hurt the church through the killing of the followers of Jesus. So he killed James with the sword. This Herod that's mentioned, it's Herod Agrippa I. That's the grandson of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, In Judea, Agrippa zealously pursued Orthodox Jewish policies, earning the friendship of the Jews and vigorously repressing the Jewish Christians. Jerusalem always posed a bit of a problem for the Romans because the Jews, they wanted to live autonomously. They wanted to, they had their own God, they had their own law, and they wanted to uh, keep it their way. And this has been pretty much throughout their history. And Herod was working toward a compromise between Roman authority, because they were 
uh, occupied by Rome and Jewish, Jewish autonomy. Herod was a politician. Politicians have not changed. He was willing to repress Christians to please the wealthy Jewish lobbyists. They had money. They were influential. And if he could do something that pleased them, he could keep this volatile situation a, a bit more manageable. So the first thing it says he did was kill uh, James, your brother John. I mean, that escalated pretty quickly. It doesn't talk of him doing anything until he just killed somebody. I'm like, oh, that that was good. That actually was good, a public, that was a service uh, to public relations. Decapitation by sword, it was a less painful and a less dishonorable death than others employed by the Romans. And the Jews who were pleased to see the blood of Jesus shed also were pleased with the death of his followers. So he's like, that was good. I'm going to arrest Peter. So he does. And he imprisons him during uh, the days of unleavened bread. So you'd have the Passover, and the seven days after the Passover, those are the days of unleavened bread. So right around Easter, he has him in prison. It was a major feast of the Jews, uh, he would maximize his impact of good publicity by bringing Peter out when there's crowds there where he can be publicly tried and executed to say, guys, I'm on your team. Herod commanded Peter to be closely guarded. There were four squads of Roman soldiers. A squad is a quaternion. That would be four. There were 16 soldiers who in shifts were guarding him four at a time. So 24 hours a day, Four men chained between two and two other guards in addition. These were not soft mall cops, okay? Uh, they were trained soldiers equipped with state-of-the-art weapons, training. Roman soldiers were fit and devoted warriors enough they could march 32 Ks a day in full armor carrying their tents and supplies. They were like, you know, trained for this. And they took it very seriously. If you chose to be a Roman uh, in, the, in the army after 25 years, if you weren't a citizen, you could become a citizen. So there's a lot riding on that. And uh, they, they did not play. So Luke writes, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God by him, for him by the church. James had just been killed. It looked like Peter was going to be next, and it seemed an impossible situation. I mean, the Romans have power. They have authority. They have these resources, weapons. You have all that on one side, and then you have, but prayer was constantly offered up by the church. Does that seem odd to you? Was that all they could have done was pray? Oh, there were other things they could have done. They could have sent a delegation to Herod. They could have hired an orator, as the Pharisees did at one point, to try to prove their case. Um, we don't see them protesting with a, a hunger strike for the injustice or gathering money to bribe officials or to plot a bold escape plan. Anything that the wor worldly means could have employed to get Peter out of his situation, they don't do. They pray constantly to the Lord. Prayer can be reduced to a last resort, can't it? It's like, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried this. Well, I guess I need to pray. What else can I do? But prayer, it's the most you can do and the least you could do. When you do something nice for someone, they go, oh, that was nice. Oh, it's the least I could do. You're my friend. I care about you. 
It wasn't a big deal because I love you. Prayers like that. But also prayer is the most you can do because you're employing an almighty God to intervene on your behalf, to change something, to bring salvation and hope where there was no hope. There was an impossibility. But God, when you bring him into it, everything's possible with him. We need to keep that perspective. There's nothing inherently wrong with utilizing judicial and legislative systems God's established, but our faith is to be in God. He's the one that we trust. He's the one who can save us. Nobody else. The Greek word for prayer here is prosuke, which is to pray, worship, or pray earnestly. And I was like, that's cool. Worship. Do you guys think of prayer as worship? Often we think of worshiping as singing songs or um, praising God. But prayer is an act of worship because it's acknowledging who God is, that he's all-powerful, that he is the one you're trusting to, to plead your case, to bring salvation. It's saying my heart is looking to God rather than worrying or being afraid or scheming. Could you please turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16? There's a difference between praying and praying earnestly. To be earnest, to be sincere, but there's a sense of desperation there because you need something. I'm convinced uh, our prayers sometimes go unanswered because we have not prayed earnestly. We've prayed for convenience, not for need. Would you guys say that's true? I was convicted by that because it's like, yeah, I pray because my life would be more convenient if God would answer my prayer. I want convenience. I don't want his will. Really, I am at the center of those convenient prayers. Or if I hear that someone's in trouble, I pray for them, rather than putting God central and them as peripheral. Like, for your sake, Lord, help this person. Instead of just get them out of trouble. So our perspective needs to change sometimes. There's such freedom and earnestness when we pray, knowing we need God's help for deliverance and salvation. Like we need him. Without him, we cannot do it. See what it says there in Hebrews 4.16. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need not when it's convenient in a time of need, when you actually need something and you don't have a backup plan. You don't have just prayer is one of the many things that I am doing. It is the thing you're doing. And you're doing it earnestly and constantly because you're trusting God to do it. You're relying upon him. We can come boldly when we come that way in our time of need. And uh, he, he answers prayer, and we'll see that. Some people, they say they need coffee in the morning. Is there anyone here that needs coffee in the morning? Maybe you need coffee at night, too. Do you need to seek God earnestly? Do you need to? You, you know it when you miss coffee, right? Do you know it when you miss spending time with God and seeking Him, when you haven't been praying? Do you need God like that? And God forbid we, we need coffee more than Him. Acts 12, verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, then that night 
Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Herod had decided when he's going to bring Peter out the night before, that night. So they have a big day tomorrow, you know. All right, public relations, boom, we're going to bring him out. We're going to have this court, condemn him, kill him. Man, rinse, repeat. Let's just keep doing this. Um, that night is when God chose to act. God miraculously intervened. He's sleeping between two Roman guards, chained to them. If you knew you were going to be executed the next day, would you have been sleeping? Peter never seemed to have a problem sleeping, but I bet we would have not been sleeping. We would have been a bit concerned. Maybe we would be even praying at that time, but Peter was dead asleep. He was resigned to the will of God. He's awakened. There's this light that fills the cell. The angel st- struck him on the side, which I like. I don't know if he kicked him or just slapped him. Or, but it says he lifted him up. and said, arise, get on your feet, put on your sandals. And he does. The chains fall off of his hands, and he thinks he's dreaming. He, it's like Peter wasn't thinking what was happening was real. They say that truth is stranger than fiction. In in this event, reality is better than fiction. It's better because it shows God answers prayers in miraculous ways, in ways that you would not expect. It shows that when we pray, God will answer our prayers. And when you're the one who's in prison, when you're the one who is suffering and struggling and in a dark place, the Lord can save you. He may not use an angel He could use any means he wants, but in this case, he employed an angel, but he hears prayers and he answers them in his time. It may be the night before this big day, but trust God. Keep praying. God was answering the prayers of his people. I wonder if they had a little gathering and they were praying together and a little child says, Lord, send an angel to save Peter. And they're like, oh, how cute. Yeah, right. Yes, Lord, amen. But that's how God did it. That's so cool that God answers prayers in unexpected ways. This was not how the people praying, as we'll see, thought it was going to play out. God could have saved Peter any way he wanted. He could have allowed Peter to face the executioner's blade like James. He let James die. Why not Peter? Our role is not to question what God allows or what he decrees, but to seek him in faith, knowing his will will be accomplished for his glory, that his plans will be done. And that even when there is suffering, even when there is that blade coming down, that God will be glorified through that. He's able to redeem even the worst things. And I know it's easy to say that, but when we look to the life of Jesus Christ and the other believers and we see the things they suffered, look at Hebrews 12, verse 3 we'll see that that gives us confidence in the Lord and strength to persevere through hard times because Jesus has done that for us. Acts 12, verse 10. 
When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Peter goes through layer and layer of security, finally to the iron gate that leads to the city, and it just swung open automatically. That's the word that's in the Greek. So it just opened on its own accord. And they went out, and they take a turn here, turn there, and whoa, angel's gone. And he, it says he came to himself. He realized that, okay, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. This actually is happening. I'm outside the prison. I recognize this place. I know where I am. And maybe he pinched himself. I don't know. But he, he realized this is not a dream. And God has sent his angel to deliver me from who? It says, from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. He realized his life was on the line. He knew what was at stake. When he was sleeping in there, he wasn't ignorant of the plan. He knew, I'm in here to die for Jesus Christ, and God delivered him. I believe he was ready and rejoicing to die for Jesus if his time had come, but God spared him because God had more for him to do. It's amazing that God chose to deliver Peter, the one who at one point denied Jesus. He is set free to continue serving him. What a sense of purpose you would have if you were Peter, right? You know the next day is going to be your last. And that night, God brings you out and sets you free. Every believer can live with that knowledge that we were slated for destruction and damnation, and God, by his grace, has set us free. He has delivered us. And let me say, he hasn't just delivered us that one time from hell and destruction when we were born again but he saved us many times since, hasn't he? When we went our own way, when we wandered from the Lord, when we were stubborn in in our refusal to listen to God, he brought us out and he's brought us here and he has us in fellowship. God has a divine purpose for your life and he wants to use you even if he was going to use Peter. He wants to make you fruitful. You may not feel that way, but know that that's the reality. That's why he has you here. At any time, God can make your heart just stop. There's tons of ways that we could, our lives could have been over. I remember once we were going to ice cream. I was probably 10 years old. I was excited. I was standing there hitting the button. Green walking man. I take that first step. My dad grabbed it by my collar because a car was running a light. So it's like, okay, my life could have been over when I was 10 years old. And how many times did God preserve me when I didn't even realize it? I was pretty grateful my dad grabbed me the way he did because I didn't see the danger coming. God has done that for you. He saved you so many times. And there's a purpose that he wants to, there's things that he wants you to learn. There's ways that he's going to bless. There are trials that he is going to bring you through. There is suffering to pass through. But no, we don't. We we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't live there. 
And when that is, when you're in a period of suffering, know that the Lord, he has a future for you that is bright and glorious in his presence. And he's filled us even now by his grace. So he's considering his situation. He's a prisoner. He's a, he's an escapee. And he is standing in the middle of the street in the middle of the night. All right, what do I do now? Um, and he thinks of the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. It was well known to him. It was likely nearby. It was bound to have believers. Believers lived with one another. They um, often ate together, and he probably expected them to be praying for him and that he would be welcome. All of this, he decided to go. And uh, what a lovely thing it is to be welcomed, to be accepted, to know where there's a safe place for you. And may we be able to provide that for other people. And I'm not just saying the church, like this building, but I'm saying you, that you could be welcoming where people come up to you and they find um, a safe place, a joyful place, a, uh, someone who's going to direct them to the, the truth of God's word. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Acts 12, 13. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Peter goes to Mary's house. He knocks on the gate. A servant girl named Rhoda comes out. She recognizes his voice, and she's so excited that she just runs back inside, doesn't open the door. And he's like, Peter's at the gate. And they're like, you're crazy. You're, you're, you've lost it. You, you don't, you're gone mad. That's the word that's used there. No, no, I'm not. Peter is at the gate. He is not at the gate. I know his voice. And then they're like, oh, it's his messenger. Or it's his spirit. They, there were, there's different beliefs about what this means. Uh, among the Jews, it was believed that you could have a guardian angel who, who could impersonate you and uh, would sound and look like you, but it wasn't really you. I don't know where that comes from. But anyway, they're like, you know, maybe it's a spirit. Maybe, you know, it's definitely not Peter, though. You're crazy. No, it's, I'm not crazy. I know I heard him. I don't know how long this whole thing went on. Peter, if you're him, what are you thinking? You're like, I know you heard me. I know you're there. Uh, hello? You're knocking on the door. You're trying to be quiet because, you know, you're an escaped prisoner. And you're about to, you were on the chopping block. Peter kept knocking. They all went to the door. Maybe Rhoda was a little concerned that it was a spirit or something. And they were shocked when they saw Peter standing there. And he's like, whoa, guys, you know, quiet down. They go inside, and he tells them how God delivered him. And this may be something that God will have you do. You've been in prison. You, you have been struggling, but God brought you out. And you can testify how God's done that. And that is a reason why, that's a purpose, why God has us go through a tough thing, so we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. That's in 2 Corinthians 1. 
Now, let's not be too hard on Rhoda. Only she went to the gate by herself in the middle of the night when a knock was heard. Let's not blame her for not opening the door, right? You're like, I'm not going out there. Who knows who's out there? could be anybody. Rhoda was right in recognizing Peter, but she wouldn't open the door by herself. And as I was considering this, I thought of the parallel between how this works with corporate prayer. It can work in a similar way. We should all cultivate a private prayer life, but there's a special dynamic when we pray with one another in one accord. As we're praying together, led by the Spirit, God often will direct our prayers through a direction where we would not have gone on our own. And uh, that happened just this morning during a prayer time that that I had, where if we're by ourselves, we kind of can get into a rut or a pattern of prayer. But when someone else is there praying, as you are led by the Spirit to pray in alignment with what He's showing them, He takes you through another door. Have you found that praying with other people expands your prayer life? You pray beyond what you would normally pray. Because there's this, the Lord's leading them and he's leading you with them. And it's really neat. God will use uh, others to minister to you as we're ministering unto the Lord. And he'll also use you to minister to others. Another observation from this is all doors do not open on their own accord. We would love every door to be an automatic door. That'd be great. Just like open, you know, the door just opens for you. Just walk through unhindered. But if the door is not open, it should not deter you from knocking. Peter kept knocking. Imagine if he had just walked away. And they opened the door and say, see, Rhoda, you're crazy. Nobody's there. No, he kept knocking. Jesus kept knocking. The church of Laodicea, right? The lukewarm church, he kept on knocking in Revelation chapter 3. He called their name. He stood at the door and knocked, not just once. He was persistent. He was gracious instead of being impatient. And my, how we can be impatient with other believers. Right? We give, it's easier to give grace to the unbeliever, but to the believer who should know better. Like, you know my name. You knew it was me. Why didn't, we don't hear that from Peter. He's happy to be with them. And so may we too have such grace and patience with one another. We make a mistake if we think in the middle of God's will, there will be no resistance. One door just swung wide open. The next door he had to knock at. And it took some time before that door was opened. But when it did, there was fellowship and there was great joy. They had been praying, but God did the work. This teaches me that from beginning to end, we cannot rightly take credit for anything. It's God who's called us, he's ordained us, he's empowered us and led us to obey him. Even our desire to do his will comes from him. Can Peter take credit for his escape? He's like, yeah, that was pretty clever, wasn't it? Just walked right out. No. He had a lot of help. He couldn't have done it himself. He couldn't even overpower the guards that were chained to him. God did that. Could the believers who were praying all through the night, 24 hours a day, could they take credit because of their praying that God delivered him? No. Because God heard their prayers and he answered them. Could the angel take credit 
for delivering Peter from prison. No, because he's a ministering spirit, a messenger sent by God who is simply obeying orders of the Almighty. No one gets credit except God in this. So glorify our great God. Based upon the surprise of the disciples, it seems they thought it would turn out a bit different. They were shocked to see him. They were glad. And I love that God delivers people even when we're not praying. People who aren't even looking for God, God reveals himself to them. He's that gracious. He's that good. Peter says, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. This James that he's talking to is likely the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. Mark 6, 3, it mentions Jesus having half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, as well as sisters. The message was sent, and Peter left for another place. Verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Verse 18 is a massive understatement. The escape of a notable prisoner guarded by four squads of soldiers was beyond irregular. This was very strange. I can only imagine the intensity in their voices when they're discussing what the heck just happened. The last time I saw him, he was with you. He was chained to you, wasn't he? What, did someone pay you off? Did they bribe? What's going to happen when Herod finds out? Like, these guys, they know their lives are on the line. And they're, they are as confused as anybody. What happened? How did this happen? Because remember, they're in shifts. There were only four were probably there on call at the, at the time. And the other, um, 12 are feeling a bit, I would be incensed if the guy that, you know, we're all on the same team here and he got away. How, how does that even happen? Herod does find out. Don brought the grand day that Herod had been waiting for, and he's like, bring out the prisoner. Uh, what prisoner? <laughs> yeah, after he does a little searching out himself, he cannot be found. He commands the execution of the guards. It was customary for guards to face the, the same punishment as the convict that they were guarding. In this case, it was death. And so they all perished. It's ironic, 16 men tasked to ensure Peter was delivered to die to the executioner's blade died themselves. And Herod, he would not escape God's wrath either, as we'll see in verse, as the verses to come, verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on the throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. After God frustrated Herod's plans, in Jerusalem he traveled to the seaside resort of Caesarea. It's a beautiful place right on the ocean. They've got a th amphitheater and a hippodrome. That's where you would do your races and athletics. The people of Tyre and Sidon had uh, been at odds with Herod at this point, and so Herod had cut off 
uh, their food supply and trade with them. And they had obtained the favor of Blastus. We don't know how, uh, but he was the, the king's um, aide and used this connection to have an audience with Herod and to really beg that he restore trade with them. They assembled to plead their case before him. The Josephus account says that when Herod appeared, he was wearing robes that had silver threads weaved through them. And so when the sun hit him, he was bright and radiant. And as he's giving his speech, you know, everyone's interrupting him. Oh, this is a god and not a man. And he's quite flattered by this. This is the epitome of flattery. Excessive praise to further personal interest. They wanted something from Herod, and so they were willing to butter him up a bit. And in a polytheistic culture, it was not odd or irregular to worship uh, men as gods, like Caesar. But what happened was odd in that God struck him. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Pretty horrible. Josephus confirmed it was five days later when he died. So that's an extra-biblical account, uh, the historical account. There's many people who have not given God the glory, right? It wasn't just Herod. There's been millions of people who did not give God the glory, who received flattery and praise from men for themselves. But they didn't die like this. But see this, it's really a foreshadowing of the torments of hell a gracious last opportunity to repent and to turn from his sin. He was a very wicked man. He was a schemer and a murderer. And God, though he struck him, there was a space to repent. God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, you're watching a movie and it's this revenge and the the revenge movie and the the villain is just so villainous, you just can't wait till they get what's coming to them. And there's a sense of justice, like right when he finally gets in the end. Or, or if he escapes, you're kind of annoyed that, that he didn't get what was coming to him. He was let off the hook. And you, get, you can almost get emotional about it, and it's just a movie. God doesn't celebrate the death of the wicked. He doesn't have like the most wanted... You know, like, if you find this person, let me know, because there's justice coming. He knows exactly where they are in real time, and he allows them to walk this earth. He allows them to rule and do their wickedness. He does not desire their death. He wants them to turn from their wickedness, and he is patient. Many wonder why God allows wicked wicked people to live at all, but we need to include ourselves as the chief offender in that category. Praise the Lord, he is gracious, and he is patient. This will be the lot of all people who reject Jesus Christ, to die forever. God's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. I love verse 24. It says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod's words, they were called the words of a God and not of a man but he was silenced in the grave. God's word, however, it was fruitful. It grew. You force the word of God underground and it will grow because it's good seed. It will grow. It will spread. You scatter it liberally and it's going to multiply. People will respond. 
God will bring salvation and eternal life. Herod, he gave a command to kill. But God, he, he kills and he makes alive. We see that in Jesus and in our own lives. And it's interesting, too, it tells us why he was struck dead. Because he did not give God the glory. How can we not give God glory? How can we give him glory is probably a better way to put that. Well, we give God the glory by openly acknowledging him and keeping no praise for ourselves. May flattery be as distasteful to us as swallowing bleach or poison. We're like, that does not belong to me. That is not going inside of me. I'm not going to receive that. And just like, thanks, but this is the Lord's. This is not for me. Think about this. Do you make a strong distinction between God's word and the word of men? We need to make that distinction. Because the people of Tyre and Sidon, they were fine for Herod's word to be compared to the word of God. But it was just a man. It wasn't God's word. Flattery wounds those who offer it. It wounds those who receive it. When I look at this chapter in full, it's such a demonstration of the power and the victory through faith in God. We have these two key players. You've got Herod and Peter. Herod, his desire is to please men, right? He wanted to please the Jews. Peter's aim was to please God. Herod employed these soldiers to persecute, to imprison, to chain Christ's followers. Peter and, and other disciples, they employed prayer. It's like quite, quite different. Despite the resources at its disposal, Herod's plans were foiled. They were frustrated completely. Peter had no, no power to free himself. He had no resources. But God sent an angel to deliver him. Both Peter and Herod had angels sent to them. But Peter was to release him and to set him free. For Herod, it was to strike him and to silence him forever. Herod was lifted up in pride and he was silenced. Peter, God's word, the the word that Peter preached, which was God's word, it grew and prevailed. Now, in Australia, we don't face uh, being arrested and placed on death row for professing faith in Christ. It does happen to other to Christians in other parts of the world. But you know, you don't have to be physically in a dungeon chained between guards to be trapped in a prison of fear and worry, discouragement, and doubt. That can be you as a believer. We can be walking freely in the sunshine, enjoying the beautiful weather, but be in solitary confinement spiritually because we're in sin and we're refusing to repent. And if this isn't you, we all know people who are in this situation. They are struggling. They are stuck. And there's no hope for them. They can't get out of that prison themselves. Will you commit to praying for those who you know who are struggling like this? Earnestly, diligently, even as the believers did. And let's not be surprised when God saves them. When he delivers them from their prison when he sets those captives free, because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 3, 8, John said, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Jesus came to destroy that power. And he has done so. We've seen that in his resurrection. Jesus came to preach the gospel, it says in Luke 4.18, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Blindness. There's blind people all around us, and only God can open their eyes. Our clever arguments are not going to bring them into the kingdom of God. It is a work of the Holy Spirit, and he wants to use you in that process as you testify of your awesome God. Could you please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7? just want to close with this thought. The gospel is such a powerful message that God intends to bring to others through you, through your life. It's his doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We are weak, but in Christ we are strong. And the weapons of our warfare are mighty. Not the carnal weapons of the world. Not the political process, but through prayer and seeking the Lord. We say we need sleep, and we do. We need food, we need coffee. But may God change our perspective to see our need to pray. That we need to pray. We need to commit to him in prayer. After Solomon offered sacrifices to the Lord, and he had prayed to God, this is God's response to him in 2 Chronicles 7, starting in verse 12. Notice that this response of God is preempted by a prayer that Solomon prayed, which took up a full chapter plus. Okay, He had been praying to the Lord, and they had just built the temple. The presence of God had filled the temple. And this is what happened after Solomon prayed. 2 Chronicles 7.12 And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attent to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Now you know, as you likely know, that at the moment there is no temple on the Temple Mount. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the inner courts was torn, exposing that chamber, signifying that we have access to God through the Spirit. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this passage, we can apply and say, this is the way that God looks at me in Christ. His eyes are open. If I will humble myself before him, if I will repent, he will heal, hear me and he will heal me. 
It says there, my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made. I've chosen and sanctified this house. God's chosen and sanctified you, believer, that my name may be there forever. He's given you eternal life. My eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. His eyes are always upon you. His affections are always toward you. And it's like, even as Jerusalem is one place, the Temple Mount is one place in the world, when he looks at you, it's like that. That kind of focus, personally, because he loves you. How great is our God, worthy to be praised. How we need forgiveness. How we need to humble ourselves before our great God. Can I please have the team come forward? And we'll close in a prayer. Thank you, Lord in heaven, for sending your son Jesus to be our Savior and for this testimony that we've read this morning of your faithfulness, how you answer prayer. You are so awesome, God, in the way that you work, in, in your love toward us, that your eyes are upon us and your heart is with us. Thank you for giving us new hearts and new minds through Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who is in a prison of doubt, if they're afflicted, if they're chained, Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, those chains would be broken, that they would be set free, and that you would get all the glory. It wasn't a prayer, it wasn't a sermon, it wasn't any person but Jesus who has done that work. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with joy and gladness, even in the midst of affliction and suffering, because you are with us. Thank you for correcting us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself and for ministering to us by your grace. And I pray, Lord, you would make us strong, that we would uh, go through the doors that seem to open automatically, and when there's a door that seems shut, Lord, we would be patient, and we would continue knocking as you lead. Lord, I pray that we would value fellowship with you and with one another, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.